0: Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the Climate Change Podcast. Hey, adapters, welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, we're focusing on wildfire. Joining me is Dr. Brandon Collins, an adjunct professor at UC Berkeley and the lead scientist at Berkeley Forest. It seems we hear stories daily about wildfires out West. We'll learn how we're still living with the poor land management decisions from 100 years ago. Combine those bad management decisions with climate change and you have a recipe for catastrophic wildfire. Brandon will take us on the ground, learning what it means to manage a force at the landscape scale. And we also discuss some of the messaging around wildfire and climate change and how the media could do better. This is a great conversation around a topic that I've barely touched upon. I have a bonus conversation with Kyle Knappenberger, the Director of Technology and Science at Timelin, and they have developed EnviroCleanse, a technology to filter air polluted by fires. I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, upcoming episodes. I'm working on a two-part series, learning how Nantucket Island in Massachusetts is adapting to climate change. I'm also doing two episodes with the Wharton Risk Center at the University of Pennsylvania, where we focus on flood, and risk in the Mid-Atlantic region. Also coming back to the podcast is Judge Alice Hill at the Council on Foreign Relations. Alice has a new book, The Fight for Climate After COVID-19. Always a treat to host Alice on the podcast. Okay, Adapters, let's take a deep dive on wildfire and climate change with Dr. Brandon Collins. Hey, Adapters, welcome back. We have an exciting episode for you. Joining me is Dr. Brandon Collins. Brandon is an adjunct professor at UC Berkeley and the lead scientist at Berkeley Forest. Hi, Brandon. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. All right. We're going to be talking about wildfire today, and I haven't really covered that much on the podcast, but let's get a little bit of background on you. So what kind of research do you do there at Berkeley?
1: We do kind of the full suite, I guess, as it pertains to wildfire and particularly a lot of California's forests. We do research that tries to look at ways to mitigate fire effects before fire comes. We do research actually using fire, and then we will do research looking at some of the effects of fire afterwards and then how maybe to, how you could reforest or what some options you have to manage your, uh, your forest conditions after fire.
0: What is Berkeley Forest?
1: It was part of a uh, sort of a rebrand of what used to be called the Center for Forestry. And then also, I guess, the Center for Fire Research and Outreach, they kind of combined into what is called Berkeley Forest. And it houses our properties. We have a few forest properties that are research forests. And then also it it houses a few of the uh, researchers that do forest ecology research, fire ecology, and forest management.
0: How did you get into this space? How did you decide this is an area that you wanted to focus on going back, I guess, in your early studies?
1: Yeah, that's always been something I, I can't fully put my finger on. I do think there was some influence of a wildfire, actually, that happened in the Oakland and Berkeley Hills when I was a kid. It happened in the early 90s, and it I was living in Alameda, which is just adjacent, the next city over from Oakland. And I remember that fire very distinctly. And it, I guess in a way, it sort of had an imprint on me. And it wasn't as though I right away said, like, ah, now I know I want to study wildfire. It just, I think it got, it got me interested enough into forests that I was then, when I went to UC Berkeley as an undergrad, I majored in forestry and then in, in forestry sort of found my way to fire by the end of, of my undergraduate studies.
0: This is the summer season and we're in the middle of fire season. And I I, I thought it'd be just useful doing a bit of a check. And we're really going to be focusing on Western forests and even very targeted in California in this conversation. But what's going on with the fire season right now in California?
1: Well, you know, I think we're, we're on a series of seasons where we've had record breaking numbers, you know, one way or another. And this one in particular, we've seen the growth of this Dixie fire in the Northern Sierra Nevada and also burning into the Southern Cascade range really kind of blow our minds as to what some of these fires are capable of. And I would have, if you would have asked me maybe the same question last summer, I would have said, well, we saw what was called the North complex blow our minds. Um, and so I, I think every, Each year for the past several years, we've had that kind of experience, whether it be from an individual fire or a series of fires, but it's, I can't say, you know, it's the worst fire season that we've ever seen. But again, there are some aspects of it that are really unique. I just
0: want to say to my listeners, too, that this conversation is going to focus more on land management and forest management and just looking at how climate change and people are going through hell right now. And this isn't like a post disaster, post fire kind of discussion. If those things come up, great. I just want to sort of make that clear, because that, that is a much different issue in itself is how people are responding to those fires. We're going to just talk about how do we kind of get here? How does management, I guess, lead to mitigate against these things? And so, I guess on that note, there's these fires in California, but the the impacts of those fires aren't necessarily staying there. I'm reading stories about impacts in the Midwest. What's that about?
1: Yeah, I think you know just the amount of smoke that that we're generating from these fires, and it and in this case, it's not the smoke is not just coming from the one fire I mentioned before the Dixie Fire. There are, are several fires that are. You know, sizable, but not nearly as sizable as Dixie that are all contributing to this. There are probably three or four fires nearing 100,000 acres that are in the Klamath range, just west of the Sierra Nevada that are putting up quite a bit of smoke. So I think collectively those fires and maybe some activity in Southern Oregon are really putting up quite a bit of smoke that is able to travel quite a long way. And this is not new. I remember this from last year too. We were getting reports, uh, you know, Arizona, even in the Midwest, as, as, you know, some of the, what was going on last year. And last year was a different story because they were more distributed. These wildfires were more distributed throughout the state, but in terms of area burned. They might be the same all at any given point in time. We're going to
0: dig into some of your research, but I guess sort of your your gut response to when you think of these wildfires, like what is your biggest concern when you, you hear about them? Obviously, you're thinking about people's livelihoods and are they at risk that way? But there's also, I mean, you must look at it in a much different way. Well, this is just natural background fire or these are unusual fires. What, what are you kind of thinking when you hear about these fires?
1: Yes, you're right. I mean, the concern is—is is how close are communities? You know, how, you know, are we losing homes? Those, those, are some of the primary things that that go through anybody's mind when you see something like this. Second to those, I, I do really worry about the the condition of the forests in the aftermath of these fires. We've seen time and time again in these really large wildfires is large patches of trees being killed, and that's completely uncharacteristic. For a lot of these forests and what happens then is that the ability to recover is much less in fact it's zero in a lot of these cases in these forests they're just not adapted to that kind of fire and that's where we that's where as as a story goes we start to get into some of the nuance because you could easily say look these forests are adapted to fire and fire is just returning to them in a natural way and the pushback i would say there is that these are not burning in a natural way
0: Well, I guess that takes me to my next question, just of course, climate change and what role does climate change play in all this? You know, I've done a ton of research for this episode and obviously think, you know, things are going to get warmer. Things burn more easily if things are warmer and such, but it's obviously a lot more complicated than that. And so this notion of like previous land management with climate change, what does that mean for the new forest system? How do you look for that climate change signal in regards to your research and management? How does that factor in? To me, the climate
1: piece really it infor- reinforces the inevitability of fire in these systems. The opportunity for fire, you know, to spread and spread fairly quickly under the climatic conditions that we're seeing is, is much greater. So the, you know, on, on the flip side, you know, you could look at it as the likelihood of us putting these things out, you know, even as good as our suppression resources are, is not good. So I, I look at it as though we need to expect fire it's not a you know and in fact learn you know in a way to to sort of live with it but i think on a way live with it on our terms rather than just the extreme conditions under which you know nature dictates
0: I want to get into, you know, fire suppression, because it's the United States, we do a lot of that. And we've done that for a long time. And the notion of how climate change is going to influence that. So previous land management on these forests, fire suppression leads to its own troubles, but then climate change leading to these new conditions, it's well, you have to look at fire suppression in different ways than problem of the previous land management. I mean, how do you separate those two?
1: You know, it is hard to do that. And people, you know, try to, you know, if you're looking for blame, you know, some people will try to ascribe blame to one or the other. And I don't think that's really that necessary and, and all that helpful in the end, both are happening, the, both the influences of our past management, which includes suppression, but other things as well. And and the climate is, is as I said before, is setting us up for this greater probability, greater potential for, fu- you know, for fire spread. So, I don't think it's necessary to parse out which percentage of which is driving what we see. But the point is, is both are happening and both are leading to these exacerbated effects. And, and one of which, one of those pieces we can deal with on the short term, the other one is a much longer horizon that we can actually do something about.
0: You know, I guess I would argue too, though, climate change is, I guess, forcing us to reconsider how we accept fire because there's always this sort of we have such a you know antagonistic relationship with fire in the united states but maybe climate change is going to reinforce us to think well the systems might be changing we need to really rethink how we uh, do land management and i'm just speculating here but it's just there's you know two competing narratives on how we're kind of dealing with the landscape
1: there are. And, and I agree. I, I think that the idea that we're, we're going to have to deal with a lot more fire and with it, you know, a lot more smoke is very true. I, I think that's absolutely part of the path forward. What I don't really I don't really like about the, how you could extend that principle is that we're just going to deal with the effects of these fires and the potential for altered ecosystems. Because if you go down down that road, then you in a way you almost have no You take no accountability in some of the ways that we set up these forests completely independent of climate for what we're seeing right now. We made them sort of the structure, the fuel loads. We made them so that they're burning in this way. And climate is only, in my opinion, making that worse. I'm curious,
0: too, that I my career has been climate adaptation. It's this emerging area. Do you enforce management? Is that language been just really coming up more recently? Or does it just completely overlap with the work that you've been doing for decades? How has that kind of come up as a, a land management strategy, climate adaptation itself is this new field?
1: It's actually been around for, you know, at least 10 to 15 years, or maybe even more. You know, the at least it's been around in the literature. I and mean, I, I think there's, you could even look into land management planning documents that could go back 10 or 15 years and they will, they will mention climate you know, climate adaptation as, as one of the mechanisms they, they need to be thinking about moving forward. Where it's probably not advanced as much is what exactly that means. Because it could mean all the way from doing some of the normal processes, normal, normal activities that we do in these forests, like thinning, different fuel reduction activities, and maybe even doing more, more thinning than we're comfortable with because of climate. But it could go as far as full on assisting the reestablishment of a new, or I shouldn't say reestablishment, the establishment of a new ecosystem or a new forest type that wasn't in that, that piece of ground previously. So I think, I mean, it, it's got a lot of space as to what, you know, how, how you could interpret the meaning of it. But I don't, I haven't seen a ton of management on the ground that, that specifically dealt with it.
0: You know, and I agree with you. My background's in wildlife conservation and the forest sector have, you know, been doing it since the mid aughts, at least. I think before the built environment folks have really got their heads around adaptation. So, yeah, I'm certainly seeing those things like vulnerability assessments and scenario planning have been tools and adaptation for, for what you do, I think for a while now. I'm going to go back to this idea of the managing for, for fire and this idea of control burning. And what gets me is these fires, they seem like how the media cover them. They're raging out of control. But for you, you know, there's this notion of controlled burns. And let's just focus, I guess, on, on the West and California. Can we really control burn our way out of these big mega fires?
1: I would say in the short term, the answer is no, but it, I think it absolutely is part of the way we can we can get to where we want to get. The reason I, I say no in the short term is that there are just, frankly, too many barriers right now to burning, and, and some of them are, are in the policy sort of sphere, but many of them are just sort of societal barriers, right? Smoke, you know, the risk of escape. The personnel to do the burn, all those things are real, real basically hindrances to, to any large scale effort to do prescribed burning. Now, I, I'm absolutely an advocate of it. I think we can do a lot more of it, but I just don't think it's the answer for the next five years, which, you know, five to 10 years, which I think are going to be critical for us if we we're able, ever to turn this trend a little bit.
0: And please correct me if I'm using the wrong terms and such for it's just land management, like let's say mechanized treatment, where you're actually using machinery to go in and remove trees in the underbrush versus like a controlled, just lighting it. And one of the papers you shared with me, I think there's all these different, like, okay, it's mechanized treatment plus controlled burn, then just mechanized treatment. And just correct me if I'm wrong, but I look at the mechanized treatment approach and it sounds like there was some really positive outcomes, but I mean can't be done at scale, can it?
1: I think it can, actually. I mean, it's not, again, it it alone is not the solution either. Um, it's just frankly too expensive um, right. it, it, for a lot of the area. It, the, the way that mechanized treatment can be done at scale is when there's enough enough material that's at commercial size or commercial or has commercial value to then pay for the treatment itself. And I, I think, you know, it, it, there's some, you know, in, in some areas we have very productive forests and we can get, you know, even when you're thinning you know, quote unquote, smaller trees and leaving the bigger trees, you can still, some of those smaller trees are are very well commercially valuable, but there's so many areas where the stuff that needs to get removed has zero commercial value right now. And so it it alone is not going to be the answer. I think that the combination, frankly, of the two of mechanical treatments plus prescribed burning, I think we can, we can make a dent. The, The last piece of it also is to actually use wildfire, to use wildfire under less than extreme conditions to do some of the work for us. Now, that's that's been something quite recently that's received some serious attention, but it, it, I think it's got to be a, a part of the solution.
0: And I'm just assuming too much here. Could you give some examples of like mechanized treatment? What does that really mean when you're on the ground out there?
1: So for a lot of our forests, it's really, it involves the removal of trees that are in the, the mid- to, to what we call sub canopy. So those are not, not the biggest trees, not the ones that are in the overstory, but the ones that are just below the overstory and then all the way down to the, to the smallest trees. And you can do that removal with chainsaws and, you know, then some other piece of equipment has to come and actually then pull the tree out to an area to be processed. And when I say process, that is to cut the limbs off, cut the tops off that are below a certain size um, and then perhaps ship it, you know, on a truck to a mill. Or the other alternative is to use a, which is actually quite common now, is to use what's called a feller buncher, which is a tracked machine that goes in and cuts the trees, stacks them, and then, you know, maybe in a bundle of 10 to 20 trees, then another machine comes off and, and drags those off to the processing. And then lastly, the last piece of sort of mechanical, which is really the most expensive part of it all, is just flat out chipping the trees in place. It's, it's called mastication, where you just basically grind the trees down and leave the, the chips, the residue in the forest.
0: Okay. I'm asking the right person here. When I think of all that, you know, and not the degrees of heavy machinery, but you know, when you look at the ecology of that forest, because you're bringing heavy machinery in, is it compacting the soil? Are are you, is the forest able to kind of rebound in a very natural way after this controlled treatment?
1: Yes. the, uh, the answer, the short answer is yes. I think we've established what are called best management practices that have been around for a few decades. And I think those using those best management practices, which include limitations on the slope that some of these these machines can operate on and even specific to the soil type. Those slope regulations change based on soil type. I think we've kind of dialed in what would be, you know, let's say a lower impact way of, of bringing equipment into the forest.
0: You know, I, I did land work in not on the land, but in Georgia worked for a conservation group. and the pine plantations there, you, you know, the mechanized treatment, those pine plantations, some of them were just biological deserts, you know afterwards. or so they're growing those pine trees and the understory was just non-existent, compact soil in between them. And so like that's that's sort of my memory of you know how they really highly treated the forest.
1: You know there's the, that's interesting, you say that because when I do talk about mechanical treatment, I think some people in their minds go to that place. Maybe it's not Georgia, but maybe they saw a you know a clear-cut. And, you know, in Oregon or even in parts of California where they said, oh, I, I couldn't believe it. it looked like, you know, crops essentially in rows with, again, like you said, nothing else on the ground. In fact, there was herbicide to, to control right, what they call competing the right. vegetation. But this is not that, right? We're not. I'm, this is not. This is leaving the backbone, if you will, of the of the forest in place. That is the largest trees, those that provide habitat to a lot of the species that we tend to, to focus on. That, that's the, the type of mechanical treatment I'm talking about. And on federal forests in particular, there are a number of safeguards in place already set sort of in stone in policy that limit the extent to which you could even do something like the intensive forestry practices that you just spoke about. I mean, we generally don't cut a tree over 30 inches in diameter. And that's, you know, in some cases it's, it's down to 20 inches.
0: Okay, so again, I've got an expert here. I've had all these questions, and so when you have these really hot fires, and you hear okay afterwards, it's and you sort of said that earlier, it's difficult for a, a normal forest to kind of reestablish itself. I'm just curious at uh, the different types of fires out there. What's happening, and what is fire? What is land management on these post burned areas? Are is most of it? Oh, we're just going to let it be and kind of grow on its own. What, what do you guys really do?
1: One of the default you know responses following. These fires has always been to salvage harvest, which is to cut the dead trees out, get some commercial value out of them and use that money to then pay for the reforestation, which then, you know, involves replanting seedlings and then also Dealing with a lot of the unmerchantable material, right? Whether it be small trees or, or limbs or other debris, which you know, oftentimes is piled by a tractor and burn and so forth. What we're realizing now is that we are not reforesting at the scale nearly close to what we're losing us at. And that, I don't want to suggest, by the way, that every acre of these these big fires is being quote unquote lost, right? I think on average we see somewhere between let's say thirty and forty percent of these. The area affected by these these fires is maybe burning at, at high severity, which means that it's killing the the trees. Sadly, we're we're reforesting some small percentage of even that high severity, so we just can't keep up right now. And I think some some areas we are doing, as you said, we're kind of letting you know. Let's say natural processes, although they aren't really natural, when the fire effects are as severe as we see, because there is no response mechanism. Like the the trees cannot regenerate following that, following, you know, large patches of high severity. So we're doing it by default.
0: Yeah. I sort of was asking about it earlier that, I mean, enough land is burned. And I'm sure as researchers, you can look at satellite data and say, well, look at all these massive scales of burn. I mean, are any of these systems, especially like in California, are you seeing them pivot to being new systems that they're grasslands now and the trees are not going to come back for 500 years or a thousand years? And are you encouraging that? It's like that that's just the reality because of the hot burn or climate change It's well. We are expecting a new type of ecosystem here.
1: I, I think it's happening. And to the extent that we're not able to change that trajectory because we don't have the resources or commitment otherwise. Yeah, it, it's, it's happening, but I don't think that most people are you know accepting the fact that that's how that we wanted that to go anyway. It's basically happening because we don't, we don't have the ability to change it, but I don't think honestly, that's probably the right approach for a lot of what we're, let's say a lot of our mixed conifer forests. We set them up in a way that they're now, burning in a very uncharacteristic way. And then to, to walk away from that and say, well, it's going to become a shrubland now. And, and, you know, in the grand scheme of things, things change. Well, yeah, they do. But we really had a a pretty heavy hand in this with our fire suppression policies for, you know, 100, 120 years, plus our our poor harvesting practices of the early 20th century. So I think that again, to, to just walk away from that and say, we're going to just accept the type conversion is, really not. It's. I don't think it's that ethical, honestly.
0: I assume just even the Forest Service. There's this bureaucratic, I guess, almost requirement, like when these things happen, that restoration or reforestation, it's almost sort of a default position anyway, right?
1: The reforestation is, is actually, it's bound by law. It's yeah. actually in the National Forest Management Act in the late 1970s. So yeah, it, we do have to reforest, although we're not doing it in a lot of areas because we can't.
0: We had a brief conversation before we did this podcast and i want you to explain that you know you hear about fire in northern California but then you hear about fire in southern California and those are two very different creatures and a lot of people in southern California are on this wildfire interface but just the ecosystem there is a bit different and fire management needs to be considered differently right could you explain
1: sure so we uh, and again th- this is even this this divide is bro- broad brushing but let's For the sake of going through this exercise, let's let's pretend that they are fairly distinct, which for the most part they are. So in Southern California, we tend to have more shrub-dominated systems. Chaparral is is another name for those systems. And they actually characteristically burn at high severity, meaning that when they burn, the whole above-ground portion of the plant burns. And for you know, many hundreds, if not thousands of acres, though. All of what seemingly the the above ground parts of of the shrub species are are dead, but they're very much adapted to that kind of fire. They have specific mechanisms to either re-sprout from from the root crowns or that their seed is already embedded in the soil. It was able to germinate really efficiently after fire. In fact, sometimes the germination is cued by the smoke itself or even the char in the soil. So they're just, they're, they're very much in tune to that type of uh, fire that comes maybe on the order of, I don't know, every 30 to 70 or maybe a little more years from an interval. The idea that you can modify the vegetation, you know, either with prescribed burning or, or with some kind of mechanical treatment to change the type of fire behavior that we see on those fires is less aligned with the ecology of those systems if that makes sense. In other words, doing some kind of treatment where you start cutting some of the shrubs, yes, it might have an effect on fire, but it also has zero connection to the ecology of the system. So you're just doing it for, you know, for the sake of trying to, you know, let's say protect houses, which is a perfectly valid reason, but it it does always sort of generate this, this conflict of you know, protecting people versus protecting natural ecosystems. In Northern California and in the forests in particular, doing some kind of mitigation, some kind of management, either prescribed burning or mechanical thinning, is actually aligned more with the ecology because you're you're essentially if you're doing removals in the proper way, removing small trees or even mid-sized trees, you're doing what fire would have done had we allowed fire to work in that system because characteristically in that system fire would generally burn in the understory. Maybe here and there it'd flare up for a few tens of acres or something like that. But but in general it was largely low severity uh, as we call it fire that maintain these generally open conditions.
0: Okay. Some people would argue that we don't have as big a wildfire problem as we think, you know, you have those super hot burns and it's just really making hard for trees to come back. But we, what we have really is an urban planning problem. And, you know, Southern California is probably a good example of that. We're allowing people to build and move into areas that are fire prone. And no wonder we seem to have all these wildfire crises. What's your take on that?
1: I think some of those decisions were made so long ago. I don't I, I see it very difficult to alter, you know, alter that condition now. I, I just don't see how you change that, you know, in particular for the Southern California piece. Now, for new development, yeah, I could see that argument very much so. Just essentially, you know, not allowing some development in some areas, knowing the inevitability of fire and the type of fire you're going to see when it does come in, in Southern California. I could could see that. But I, I think for those established communities, I don't know how you tell them, oh, well, I think you guys need to go somewhere else. Because the ecology of the system is not going to thrive. I think honestly, we do have to do some, some type of management that is frankly going to not be aligned with the ecology in order to protect those communities. In Northern California, I think you can actually, you can get some alignment even with people living in the urban interface, the wildland urban interface. I think if we were able to manage these forests, properly i i think that the risk would be much much lower to some of those homes the odd thing about it is i think a lot of people are so used to seeing the forest in the condition that it is now let's say you have a cabin up in the woods you've been going up there for 30 years and you're used to seeing you know a lot of trees and getting very little sunlight on the ground what if you were to to actually do a a restoration type of thinning there it would look very foreign to them and so i think some people might not even like that because you'd see your neighbor you know it'd be hotter for sure. But I I think we need to basically educate those people uh, on one, the ecology of the the system and two, the inevitability of fire. and, And those two things together would tell you, you need to thin your land. And you can still live there. It's not going to be terrible. You know, the risk will be mitigated for sure. But
0: I'm curious because I guess I don't know enough about fire management. When you think of flood zones, people aren't technically supposed to, you know, build in the, the flood plain. And there's rules like one in a hundred year, one in a five hundred. And obviously, there are people that did that in the past, and they keep rebuilding. But they are trying to create an infrastructure of regulation. The National Flood They're trying to reform the Management Act. Is there an equivalent for fire that? Okay, these we know they're fire zones, but there is there any sort of legal deterrence that keep people from moving into fire zones in California?
1: Not that I'm aware of, but what is happening and what what's happening in a very real way is insurance costs, which in a way are, are you know, not regulating, but but are maybe changing people's behaviors. I, I think that I've actually even seen in some of the areas where there have burned and burned badly, lost homes and all that, they're not rebuilding. And that could be for the you know the lack of insurance, but it also could be just the you know the inability of people to, to really tolerate that environment. That's that's been so altered from what they're used to seeing, and so they just go somewhere else. So maybe in a way, in an indirect way, that's how it's where change will, will will start to happen in some of those areas.
0: Are you finding different demographics are interested in your work? Are you interacting with insurance companies or like urban planners or city planners? Is that something that's coming up more and more for you?
1: I'm not interacting with insurance companies, but what is different, at least is just some of the, the groups that are that are asking us to speak at. I spoke at uh, something in one of the Bay Area towns around here. Actually, a couple of different events that had nothing to do with ecology or wildlands. These are different, you know, these are groups that are just really social groups and they're just interested in fire enough to want to learn about it. So I think that's a pretty interesting development is that we're either by direct exposure, to, you know, to fire some of the people like we had in 2017, all the fires in the, in the Northern Bay area, but also the smoke that we've had over the last several years, getting into these, some of these main, you know, population centers has really got people asking questions about fire. And I think that's actually, if there is an upside to all this, that that's an upside is our ability to basically provide this information to a much more willing audience, a audience is willing to listen.
0: My next question is associated with how the public's responding and how the media covers fire. To me, it's the fire season and it's almost like Groundhog Day with these fire stories. <laughs> and I'm sure you probably feel the same way. It's like, all right, it's the wildfires in California are flaring up again. And this community is threatened and not to minimize people actually, their lives are at risk, but it's just, this happens every year. And I think the media is getting much better in bringing in the climate change angle into it too. That's a good development. But at the same time, it's, all right, let's dust it off and let's talk. And there's a sort of this urgency, but I guess my thinking is like, well, th- w- this narrative will be repeated every year. So let's let's maybe change our mentality about it. I mean, what's, what's your sense of sort of media coverage?
1: I agree. And I don't, I don't blame the media at all for what they're doing in terms of covering it. What I would think is why are we as land managers not doing something very significant to to change this. You're right, it is Groundhog's Day. Every year, it's the same thing. Oh, disastrous, you know, fire effects and oh, terrible winds. And we just can't get a hold of this fire no matter how many people we put on it. At some point, I would just would really like to see a major effort to change this on the front end, on the, the pre-fire side, where we are actually going to do something significant to manage these for us at a, at a large scale to change this trajectory. But I, I think we just can't get over the hump on some of these. And it's always easier to respond to a disaster, I guess, than it is to prevent one.
0: I don't know what, like on Twitter, you know, obviously follow a lot of climate handles and such. And it just seems like there's always just trying to create a little bit new twist that, oh, here, you know, the climate change angle, whatever, this new sense of urgency. And I just, you know, it, it doesn't seem like a healthy approach to the long game of what you're up to. And, you know, I guess it's more resources or whatever, but it, there's a fire deficit, right? And maybe you want to sort of explain what that term means. You've sort of, you know, talked about it in the previous, what we've been talking about here, but. We just we're going to have fire indefinitely. And how do we talk to the public about this? And how does the media, I guess, do a better job than not every year that this is the turning point year? I I just don't think that's necessarily helpful.
1: I agree, and I think that maybe at some point we need to get very direct with you know landowners in fire-prone environments and tell them that we may not be able to get there. We may not be able to stop a fire. Well, we not we shouldn't say may. We're not going to be able to stop a fire at some point from getting onto your land. It's up to you, you know, with some assistance and some expertise the governments can provide to prepare your land. Essentially, don't rely on us to put it out, but essentially, but prepare for it to happen and essentially try to with, you know, let your, your piece of ground withstand the fire and sort of remain intact.
0: This might be verging in sort of media strategies that you're just not comfortable talking about. But I look at, I think a lot of people really want to use the fires to sort of make a case that we need to do something on climate change. I obviously, I got a podcast on climate change. I think we need to do it. You know, sometimes you get this climate fatigue and people will look at these fires to Well, why are they living in the fire zone in the first place? And I, you know, in some ways it might actually even backfire as a way to create some of that urgency around We got to get our carbon emissions down. And so, I I mean, (laughs) I I just worry that the media strategies are going to kind of backfire.
1: It could. You're right. I mean, to a certain extent, if you you just keep pushing the climate side of it, I think in a way, people maybe will tend to accept the inevitability of it and say, okay, well, I guess this is just the new normal that we're just going to have giant fires every year we can't do anything about. I worry about the over pushing that, that climate narrative. It's absolutely a part of it. But like I said before, I think the climate only reinforces the inevitability of it. And that, you know, the, the management side of it, where we're dealing with the tree densities and the fuel densities, that's what, what we can change the effects of the fire, not whether fire is actually going to happen or not, but just what it does when it does come.
0: Yeah. And I I don't want to give the impression that we don't need, I think we need a massive climate change narrative, a communication push that everyone gets behind. But like when you hear these fire stories or these flooding stories, a lot of it is just like, well, look, they really made some bad decisions on where they're living. You know, sometimes that comes off more so and it can't decouple it from the overall climate message you've talked a lot about some of the things that we could do, but I, I do want your sort of professional advice in a perfect world with unlimited resources. What really would be sort of a, let's let's just stay focused on California though, like a, a really comprehensive approach to fire management to help deal with these long-term issues. What should really happen?
1: This is, uh, <laughs> I guess we're living in this ideal world, right? Right. Well, this, is, this is this I you. can sort of point a finger and make something happen. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have okay, to be well, a
0: end game, but just sort of think, well, we're missing this. Real. We're not focused here. It's just like, what what really would just be budget is not even an issue.
1: Well, I, yeah. You know, the funny thing is I don't think that budget is the limiting factor right now. But okay, here, let me give this for a start. So one thing that could be super helpful is if we were able to establish a market for biomass. And that could, largely what we're talking about here are these small diameter trees that can't go to a mill. They're just too small, they're not worth it, but must need to be removed um, from this standpoint of fire hazard. Right now, all we can do with them generally is put them in a giant pile and burn them when the snow you know when there's a little bit of snow on the ground so we're not worried about you know escape but if we had a, a real mechanism a distributed you know network of these biomass facilities to take some of that small diameter material and offset the cost of the removal i think that could be a huge step because we could that could then open up a whole lot more area for treatment so that's step one step two i think is to simplify the planning process honestly on federal forests they're You know, people would. Some people would freak out by by me saying that. But I, I'm telling you, I think there are the important safeguards are are in place. Leaving large trees, we've got diameter limits. We're not going to mess with those. We've got protections for water courses, and then some of the the soil impacts, like we talked about before. We have those in place. We're not talking about messing with those. We're just talking about. I'm I'm talking about streamlining the planning process so each thing, each project. Doesn't take three to five years for a 100,000 acre project. We need to be able to push those things out in a year, in my opinion. Lastly, I think a, a really strong commitment to prescribed burning. And I'm in prescribed burning throughout the year. Oftentimes, what we do is we hire firefighters in the spring and they work through the season sometimes into the early fall and then they're laid off in a lot of cases for the winter time. But if we were able to establish sort of a year round program of work for these firefighters that took advantage of opportunities to burn in the winter there, I'm telling there are opportunities now. And I think there's actually a climate signal on that. We have these periods. It seems like now over the last many years in January and February, where there's no snow on the ground and it's really actually optimal conditions for prescribed burning, but we don't have a crew in place to do that. And then, you know, that crew, while there's not burning opportunities, could then do some of the of the thinning work. You know, what we call hand thinning. So I just I think we if we had a real commitment to that as a professional track for jobs and and so forth, I, I think that could be a, a big difference. But those are the top three things I think could could start making a difference.
0: Well, some of these big bills, the climate funding coming through Congress, one of them it, it wants to establish a climate core. Boy, that just seems like a perfect, you know, example of like that what kind of jobs would they be doing? there you go, sort of full-time, you know, wildfire staff. So, all right, any sure. DC, DC listeners and doing any of that kind of work? And why don't you slip that into the uh, appropriation. And I, and I guess any sort of additional thing that I would like as part of that, and I push that a lot on the podcast, is a communication strategy that needs to be coupled with fire management. I know the US Forest Service they get a lot of funding to do a lot of really interesting research and i know messaging and communications th- that's out there but it's just i you know maybe it needs to be better that really how do you maybe they need to partner with different people but the messaging around force management just needs to ramp up because i think that's there's just a deficit there
1: i think you're right and i think you know what what i see at least on the research side of things which you know a lot of our research you know bridges into outreach which should you know include the messaging piece of it right but a lot of it is, is kind of one-offs. You know, it's just a particular group or a particular person is effective, maybe through, you know, through whatever means they're effective at getting the word out, but that's no, it's not really a coordinated effort at a broader scale. And I don't. I, I don't have a good sense of what that would look like, but I think you're absolutely right. If we could do something, you know, something better, more, you know, streamlined for the West itself, as to what, like I said, the inevitability of fire and our ability to sort of change some of the characteristics, I think that could really take hold. I think enough people have seen fire in the last several years that it's fresh on their minds and they're probably willing to to hear that message.
0: Brandon, this has been a fantastic conversation. I encourage people, I'm going to have some links in my show notes. You share some papers with me if people want to dig into academic papers. They're actually they're really compelling reads and some of the, the history of forest management. So I, they're actually really good reads. Well, I have one last question for you, and I ask all my guests this. If, if you could recommend one person to come on the podcast, who would it be?
1: So I guess off the top of my head, I could think of uh, a couple, but I'll, I'll list Rob York who is a colleague of mine through UC Berkeley. And Rob's got an interesting background because he is a forester and used to manage our research forest near Georgetown, California. And he is an avid prescribed burner. He he burns all the time, including in the winter. He'll burn with two or three people. I, I know that you know it, he has this really interesting background of, of very much on the ground management and the research side of things. So I, Rob could be very, very interesting because he's... He's got the burning experience, he's got the forestry experience, and he's got, you know, sort of the research chops as well.
0: All right, great. Excellent recommendation. All right, Brandon, thanks again for coming on and sharing your expertise. And, you know, good luck. Your research is going to just be more important in the years ahead. Thank you, Doug. Hey, Daptors, welcome back. Joining me is Kyle Nappenberger. Kyle is the Director of Technology and Science at Timelon. Hi, Kyle. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey, Doug. It's great. Pleasure to be here. All right, really quickly, what is Timelon? Timelon Corporation, we are a company that develops products in what we call the adsorptive neutralization space. Essentially, we make materials that are very effective at breaking down harmful chemicals. So we do a wide range of things that involve destroying harmful toxins, chemical warfare agents, air pollution Air quality, you name it. Uh, if you've got a bad chemical, we probably have a product or a solution or we're lurking in that area to solve those problems. So we're going to be talking
0: a bit about the the threat of wildfire smoke. And you know, when people think of wildfires, they usually associate the threat with the fire itself, but the threat of the smoke, even that lingering smoke, is a public health issue. So what actually is in wildfire smoke?
2: Well, it's a combination of particulate matter as well as chemicals, you know, people think of what they see, you know, the the burning fire or the smoke and the ash. But that smoke is really a combination of a lot of different particulate matter, particulate matter that can range, you know, down to 0.25 microns in size, larger. But there's often a lot of different harmful chemicals in there. They can be, you know, different VOCs. It depends upon, of course, what has been burned down. You know, wildfires, you're, you're generally thinking of things that are the result of organic matter being burned and consumed but there's also the man-made things that could be there too that can release even more potentially harmful chemicals in the air you know the things that come to mind for a lot of people with chemicals are the the formaldehyde and carbon monoxide and those sorts of things but it really can be quite a bit more broad than that which is which does make it you know a, a public health concern.
0: Well, and so most people, when they're around wildfires, even in the general region, they're not under threat of that fire itself, but they can smell the smoke. They go in and they close the door, and they think, "All right, more or less, problem solved." But the smoke's still getting in the house, right?
2: Oh, you know, absolutely. the The home is exchanging air with the outside all the time. You know, it could be your HVAC systems, exhaust fans in bathrooms or kitchens, fireplaces, just leaky windows, doors. All of these things can create an environment that Frankly, allows for things to leak into the, the indoor environment. You know, people do a number of different things to try to mitigate that. And I
0: don't think a lot of people actually know. You think you smoke cigarettes and there's a health impact, but when you're inhaling
2: wildfire smoke, what what are some of the health consequences of that? Some of the long term effects are still being studied, but there's a lot of the same. You know, I mean, it is chemicals and it is particulates. There are quite a few different issues that people could have. You know, the general respiratory heart-related issues from the smoke and the particulates are obviously some of the big ones. The long-term effects are still being studied. You know, a lot of times people don't have the ability, you know, they're we're not they're not being evaluated for long periods of time uh, for wildfire smoke. But when you start looking at some of the other studies that are out there, but it is the one you mentioned, secondhand smoke. If you look at occupational hazards, fire responders have one of the highest cancer rates by occupation. And it's because they're repeatedly being exposed to smoke and chemicals and combustion and wildfire smoke is, is the same thing. I mean, it's got the same things. It's got chemicals, it's got particulates, it's penetrating and getting into people and the body's immune system can't always handle that.
0: Helping clean indoor air, you know, especially from wildfire smoke is this is your space. And so
2: there's this environment
0: cleanse that you guys have developed. What is that?
2: Well, EnviroCleanse is a family of products that utilizes our, our technology to mitigate harmful chemicals, pollutants, particulate matter. And, and the name EnviroCleanse is, is Often associated by consumers with our air purifier, we have air purifiers that can be used in indoor enclosed spaces to mitigate various indoor pollutants or pollutants that are in that space. The EnviroCleanse air system utilizes HEPA filters, and it also has a air cartridge that uses our patented materials to mitigate harmful chemicals that may be circulating in that environment. So you've got a nice portable, movable air purifier that can be used in enclosed spaces. One of the things that a lot of people don't always think about is indoor air quality is what's coming into the home it's things in the home but it's not just particulates it's the chemicals and the odors as well that are circulating in that environment and our system is addressing both of those aspects a lot of air purifiers are working against just the particulates where ours is working against the particulates but then the other things like the chemicals and the odors and the scents and the things that people often smell. So there's
0: obviously other uses for it. Not everyone's going to have wildfire threat all the time, but there's all these other, you just said, chemicals and such. But, you know, I guess walk through the, in the process that you're you're flipping on, let's say the, the purifier part of EnviroCleanse. Is this something you're keeping on instead sort of indefinitely? How does that all work?
2: Well, I have one in my office and it's been on for as long as I've been in this office to give you kind of an example. Because, you know, air quality is something you really do want to improve i always kind of make a little bit of a joke you know you can make decisions on food you eat the things you drink the medications you take but you really can't pick your air unless you're you know willing to move where do you work where do you live You, you kind of have to deal with that but you can address some of the things by taking steps to be proactive, use good quality air filters in your home central air, use standalone portable air purifiers to address particulates, chemicals, and odors. You know That's what I do. That's what a lot of the folks that I know are doing. You're absolutely correct. Not everybody, fortunately, is always dealing with wildfires, but there's a lot of different things around the home that can create negative air, not you know, things about the air quality that aren't good that you would want to address.
0: Well, you must have been following that there's all these wildfires that are happening out in California but people yeah. in the Midwest were actually experiencing some really serious air quality issues. It, that must've just, you know, raised some alarms at your company.
2: Well, yeah, I'm, I'm here in the Midwest, uh, in Kansas, and we had some very high particulate levels in the air at times, made for some interesting and pretty sunsets at times, but it, just the hazy particulates all over the air, air quality wasn't good. Some of the worst, you know, that we've had around here in, in times when, when the winds were blowing, right? Because it was just blowing all that stuff right here in the Midwest. Obviously, there's an
0: interest for customers for this product. And, you know, wildfires is just one potential impact. But let's say we're in a warming world and, you know, we're going to have these things. Like, who are your customers?
2: Our customer base consists of folks that are addressing what I would call like acute situations uh, such as the wildfires, but chronic related problems as well. People that are, you know, maybe they live in a home that has some chemical smell or scent that they just can't handle. We have uh, customers that are businesses, schools looking to improve indoor air quality. There's, There's obviously a lot going on in the world right now related to airborne pathogens and the global pandemic with COVID. People are looking to to clean their air and really our customer base is just about anybody. We are not limited to any particular market, group or person. It's people that are looking to improve their air quality. Yes, uh, you know, we've had a lot of customers out west dealing with the wildfires and we, we have a lot of customers who unfortunately are repeat customers that are every year looking to buy another device because the wild, you know, they live in an area that's prone to wildfires, but just the average home People are looking now to improve their air quality because they're more conscious of the issues that poor air quality and allergens can cause or pathogens or just some odor they're not particularly fond of.
0: You know, I guess I'm curious that we actually had a pretty big wildfire just in our mountains north of us here in Tucson. And rarely did we smell the smoke, but that doesn't mean it was out there. I mean, are there things that people do to sort of say, "All right, what's the air quality in my home?" That, all right, I maybe I should consider a purifier. Like I, I would be curious because I wasn't sure if I was going to be exposed or not.
2: You, you probably were. Uh, if the air quality is low, you know that's that's getting everywhere. A few things that people can do, though, when the air quality in the area is bad, is one have good air filters in your home. If the problem and the sources were outside the home, doing things to somewhat tighten up the home, reduce the amount of, Air exchange with the outside. Try to then, you know, have something like an EnviroCleanse air system in the home that's then actively purifying the air in your home's environment, uh, so that you know you're not introducing something like that wildfire smoke and bringing it in. But what does get in, then you at least have something in the home that is addressing that. Some people have even gone as far as try to build like safe rooms in homes that where they're really pretty well sealed up. Interior rooms, doors, windows all sealed up with air purifiers in it. So if things get particularly bad, they can really close off all the the air circulation, you know, to the outside within reason, of course, uh, you (laughs) got to be safe. But then having something in that home that's actively addressing things that make it into the home is is a pretty good way to do that.
0: You know, I'm just curious because this podcast is about adaptation, adapting to climate change. Does that sort of rhetoric even come up at your company? I know you're thinking wildfires, but are you thinking, all right, well, this is a product or brand that, you know, we're actually helping people
2: adapt to climate change. Do you use that kind of rhetoric? It is something that I know that our teams are independently thinking about, whether that's in marketing groups or in our, you know, the technical group in, in product development, looking at, you know, how, how things are changing, how people. It's actually also not how things are necessarily always changing, but also how are the people adapting to what is changing and how can we serve those needs? Uh, that's, that's equally important. Okay. So if people
0: want to learn more about EnviroCleanse, what would be the best thing for them to do?
2: It would be to go to our website, which is envirocleanse.com. And that's that's spelled a little bit odd. It's E-N-V-I-R-O-K-L-E-N-Z.com. They can read about our devices, third-party testing, validation, everything on the various products and air purifiers and air quality things that we have available.
0: Well, that's great. I'm just expecting all sorts of interesting technologies to come online to help people in regards to how they're adapting to climate change and such. It's a very interesting product out there. appreciate what you're doing, and thanks for coming on the podcast.
2: Oh, absolutely, Doug. We appreciate the opportunities to talk about our technology.
0: Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Brandon for coming on the podcast. If we could only travel back in time and tell those forest managers to do things differently. When you're dealing with trees, you have to look at the long-term and we're still dealing with the legacy of their poor management. Still, I'm encouraged by the opportunities that the research that Brandon is doing affords us on future land management. We can make a difference in managing this landscape for climate change. It's just going to take more resources. Places like California will also have to make some tough decisions around development and growth. People moving into the fire zones. Hopefully, as Brandon said, insurance companies can help influence decisions like that to avoid these high-risk areas. I highly recommend you dig around in my show notes on the webpage if you want to learn more about wildlife research and management. Okay, I want to thank the Waterfront Alliance out of New York and New Jersey. They came up with a staff list of their favorite climate podcasts, and Courtney Conant-Warrow picked America Adapts. Thanks, Courtney. There are also some other great recommendations on there. So check it out. There's a link in my show notes. It's a great organization. Go check out what they're doing. Okay, don't forget to subscribe to the America Dapps newsletter. We highlight the latest episode and news and stories related to that episode's topic. We also highlight other climate podcasts and share a few other adaptation-related goodies. In the show notes, there's a link to subscribe. And here's a call to action. Encourage your friends and colleagues to subscribe too. Okay, so if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work, In a podcast, consider sponsoring an episode of America Adapts. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work that you are doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I'm currently working with the Trustees of Reservations on two episodes. I'm also working with the Warden Risk Center at UPenn on two flood-themed episodes. Podcasts are a great and innovative way to educate people on the work that you're doing in the adaptation space. I do go on location for some of these sponsored podcasts, but I can do remotely, especially in the COVID era. This is a chance to share your story with all my listeners who represent some of the leading practitioners and researchers in the adaptation and climate universe. Most projects have communications written into them consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentation. Many groups work into their communication strategies. So if you want to learn more, email me at americadapts at gmail.com. Also, a reminder to you adapters, I love hearing from you. Take the time to email me just to say who you are. And if you're in the field, let me know what you do. Shout out to Don Wright up there in New Brunswick for taking the time and letting me know what he thinks of some recent episodes. Thanks, Don. You too can reach out. I would love hearing from you. It gives me some understanding of who my listeners are and what you guys are doing. And even if you're not in the adaptation space, I want to know how the podcast provides value to you. Again, my email is americadapts at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out the website, americadapts.org. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.